Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. A call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs 24, verse 8. He who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. He who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. Pay attention to the action. We are talking here about someone who is planning out evil. They're secretly devising to take advantage of their brother or to abuse their neighbor. We're talking about premeditated guilt here. There is no excuse. And the evil that results does not come about accidentally, nor was it unintended. This kind of wickedness is bold, it's arrogant, and it's particularly bad for society. This is why there's a much greater penalty for murder than there is for manslaughter. The word translated schemer has, here is, is variously translated as mischief maker or mischievous person and even troublemaker. The Hebrew for it is literally master of evil plans or lord of the schemes. And it is how the one who plots to do evil will be known. Your actions affect your reputation. If you are a troublemaker, you will then become recognized as one. And because sin and evil are folly. You can't hide your evil in your closet and get away with it. You can't harbor wickedness in your heart and not have the fruit be evident in your life. No matter how hard you try to bury it or hide it or the seed matures into the plant which then produces evidence of what sort of seed it is. Now the example which I just used of murder is extreme, but the principle reduces down. We are all sinners and we all have wickedness in our hearts. We all have wicked reflexes at times, bursts of temper, slips of the tongue, accidentally injuring our brother or sister, verbally, emotionally, or physically. These things happen, but grace can cover these things. We learn to control ourselves. We confess and ask for forgiveness. We make restitution, and then we learn from our mistakes. But there is a person whom trouble follows like a cloud, because it's his or her middle name. They plan it, they plot it, and they execute it. To be sure, they are full of excuses, and they're good at shifting the blame. But the wise man knows when to call a spade a spade. In the end, the truth will out, and the fool must wear his shameful name tag. But here's where we get to the good part. Jesus came to save sinners. It doesn't matter if you are the chief of sinners. By nature, we all are. Nevertheless, Jesus can intervene. He can and he does. And all it takes is a little humility and a lot of God's grace, which, as it so happens, he has richly provided. 
Jesus can pay for your sins. All you need to do is believe him, confess your sins, and repent. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins to God. This morning is Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. And it comes at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he's just con concluded the body of his sermon, the, the, the main message of the sermon. And now he's entering into the conclusion of his message. In the body, Jesus revealed the true interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures which he summed up in the golden rule. He says, Do unto your neighbor as you would have them do unto you, for this is all the law and the prophets. So in the conclusion, we're going to notice a theme of opposites. Jesus is going to be making comparisons that he's drawing from this explanation of the law. So he says, Okay, now you know what you're supposed to do. This is the true interpretation of the law. Now, now I've got some some comparisons to make for you. So he compares the broad and the narrow gates. He compares true and false teachers. He compares true believers with hypocrites. And finally, he compares the wise and the foolish builders. This theme echoes Moses' declaration to the Israelites at the end of Deuteronomy just after he had given them the law and the commandments. And just before he passed his mantle over to Joshua, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting at verse 15, we read this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Comparison. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So, so Moses gives them the commands, and then he says, look, here's your choice. Obey and live, or turn away and die. So similarly, Jesus closes his exposition of the law with two ways, two gates. Our text today is about the broad and the narrow gates. And this is yet another famous passage, which you may have noticed by now, the Sermon on the Mount is full of them. Um... It's another famous passage, and as we shall see, it is frequently misunderstood and misapplied today. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, our text this morning. Enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So our Lord has set before us two gates and two ways. The hard way and the easy way. He says, this, I've given you the law, obeying it's the hard way. The hard way is the narrow way. And given it, the context of the sermon, he's given us a metaphor for keeping the law. He, he opened the sermon with, blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the narrow way, the hard way, is, is, is keeping the law. It's suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. But its end is life. It's a hard way, but it's going in the right direction. The easy way, this is the broad one. It's a, it's a metaphor for breaking the law. For yielding to our natural inclinations. Water flows downhill. And we all have sinful hearts. Therefore, it's easy for us to break the law. But the end of this way is destruction. So given the parameters of Jesus' metaphor, the choice here should not be a hard one. Right? This, he's not trying to trick us. He's not trying to confuse us. He's being fairly obvious. He's not beating around the bush. He says, look, do you want to live or do you want to die? It's that simple. It's the same as Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy. Now the difficulty here, though, is putting it in practice. Jesus warns us that the way that leads to life is difficult. It's hard. The word difficult from verse 14 because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. That word difficult is, uh, is, is the verb flebo. That's kind of a mouthful. Flebo. Literally, it means to, to press or squeeze or to pinch. And basically, you've got to work hard to get through that way. It's tight. It's a narrow way. It's difficult to pass through it. Figuratively, which this verb is used frequently throughout both the Septuagint and the Old Testament, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, figuratively, this, this word difficult means to oppress or to afflict. And, must, and most of the time in the New Testament, it's translated as tribulation or affliction or suffering. Our faith the narrow gate, the narrow way, necessarily entails suffering, hardship, and difficulty. If you will believe the words that Jesus teaches, and you will do what he tells you to do, you will have difficulty. Because suffering and affliction are a part of our burden. And this teaching is handily borne out in the rest of the scriptures, in the rest of the New Testament. John 16, verse 33, Jesus teaches his disciples this. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Here's that word. Tribulation. 
But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So the fact that we should have suffering in our following of Jesus does not and should not cause us to despair. Because as you can see, this suffering in Jesus is surrounded and enveloped and covered with peace, with comfort, with glory, with assurances, and with promises of salvation and hope. Instead of shame, this suffering is a badge of honor for Christians. It's a badge of honor for Christians to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of His gospel. So that first verse bears it out right there. Look, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. There's victory, there's glory. Acts 14.22, Paul's ministering to the disciples in Galatia on his first missionary journey. And he's speaking to them, he tells them this. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Enter the kingdom of God. Our tribulations are the door. It's the narrow gate. It's the, it's the narrow way. It's the path by which we follow our Lord. Paul again in Romans 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance produces patience, etc., etc. Again in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says... And said, Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed for this. It's God's plan. Don't lose your faith. Don't let it shake you. Suffering is part of being a Christian. Paul again in 2 Corinthians. We are hard-pressed, that's that word, flebo. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And finally, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 says, But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. When we glorify Christ by bearing our tribulations, we are glorified. We are lifted up. In our humility, God lifts us up. So we have the two ways. The hard way, the good way, and the easy, but the hopeless way. There's no hope. There's no peace. There's no forgiveness in the easy road. But now we come to the two scopes. We've got two ways. Now there's two scopes. Lots of twos today. Two scopes. We have, what's the scope here? Well, we have the many and we have the few. The many and the few. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Well, we've got scope. The many and the few. According to our Lord, in this text, many choose death, and few find life. Because of the difficulty. Nevertheless, he clearly commands his disciples to enter in by the narrow gate. He says, not many find it, but I'm telling you the way. Here's the way. Go that way. But Jesus is proclaiming a brand new thing in the world. He's come preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And by the rules which he has just laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, this radical righteousness, you know, loving your enemy. Uh, uh, do unto your neighbors as you'd you have them do unto you. Uh, lust is as bad as, as adultery. Uh, anger is as bad as murder. This way, he's laid out this law, but he says, your father, your God is your father, and he loves you and he cares about you, and he has a reward for you. If you will be sincere in your faith, if you will not be a hypocrite, if you will serve him honestly, he has a reward for you, and that reward is eternal life. So the, he's proclaiming this eternal life, this, this kingdom of heaven, into a world that didn't hear, know this gospel beforehand. Jesus is the light that comes down and shines among men. He's bringing that light. But when Jesus comes, he reveals something. Our Father in heaven is holy. His standard of righteousness is far surpassing the received wisdom of the day. Right? They're supposed to, the righteousness is supposed to uh, surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, the scribes and Pharisees were the holy rollers of the day. I mean, you, can't do, you couldn't do the burdens that they put on you. But you had to be better than them. He's that holy. But he's close to us and he loves us. And his reward is in his hand, his riches. Do you remember the mammon versus the, the riches you put in heaven? His riches are imperishable. So Jesus says, enter this hard, difficult way, this way of suffering, this way of love. Because the end of this road is life. And life always beats death as a reward. It's black and white. So, yes, I know it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. And not many people will get it. This is the way you go because this is the way of life. This is your only hope. Now you have this scope, right? The few and the many. But the the scope can be interpreted two different ways. So we got we got two ways. We've got two scopes, and now we've got two interpretations. We have the literal interpretation, and we have the figurative interpretation. What's the literal interpretation? Well. Many will, find, will go down the broad path, and a few will go down the narrow path. Many people will go to, to, to death and destruction, and few will go to life. That's literal. We can understand that Jesus is teaching that few will be saved, and that reading is natural to the text. But then figuratively, we can see these gates, instead of just talking about who, how many people are going to be saved, we can see these gates as ways of salvation. There's a broad way of salvation. There's a narrow way of salvation. 
There's only one gate that leads to life. And his name is Jesus Christ. There are countless roads that lead to destruction. And men are prone to follow them. We are prone to false worship. We are prone to idolatry. We are prone to pride. And we are prone to arrogance. So we have two interpretations. The literal and the figurative. But the literal interpretation can be problematic. There are scripture passages that teach that only a remnant will be saved. And our text today is probably the best proof text that the Bible teaches for maintaining a narrow view of salvation in the grand scope of history. If somebody wants to come and talk about how bad things are in the world and how things are just going, going to hell in a handbasket, how, you know, Armageddon is just around the corner, the, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And you say, really? And they say, well, look, Jesus says only few will be saved. The commentaries tie this verse to the, 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 the declaration that we need to preach the gospel to the nations. But we ought not to expect the nations to, to believe, because only a few will be saved. And this, because of this, because this is the, the big interpretation of this passage, is why I have point number three in your bulletins. How do we reconcile remnant passages with kingdom passages? Now, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. Personally, I am cautiously but vibrantly optimistic about the future of Christianity on the earth. I'm not making a prophecy. I'm not saying this is going to happen. That's not what I'm saying. What, I, I, what I'm saying is Jesus can come back whenever he wants to. And if he comes tomorrow, I, with the Apostle John and every other true believer, say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. We serve at his pleasure. If that's what he wants to do, praise God. And our duty is to be prepared at all times. But that said, I believe that the Bible gives us warrant to expect that Jesus' gospel will flood the earth and all nations will, as we read in our text this morning, bow the knee and profess Jesus as Lord before the end of time. God is great, and His grace is magnificent, and His scope is global. So how do we reconcile this proof text for a small salvation, for a negative and pessimistic worldview, with what I have just said? How can we say that few will find it means that many will find it? Well, the problem comes when we absolutize our text. The problem comes when you make this text absolute and apply it to all people everywhere the same way. Jesus was talking to a specific audience at a specific point in history. And at that time, and for those people, Jesus was speaking blatantly, he was speaking literally, and he was speaking the truth. But we can't take that truth and apply it across the ages as a blanket statement if 
And this is a big if. We can't do that if that statement is found to contradict what other texts in the scripture teach. This doctrine in theology is called the analogy of scripture. It means that scripture interprets scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture comes from the spirit of God. All scripture conveys truth. Sometimes we have to wrestle with it to, to figure out what it means, though. Sometimes it seems to contradict itself, but it does not. Thankfully, God's word, besides being interpreting itself, it's intelligible. In, in theology, this is a doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture. It means that when we read the Bible, God isn't trying to trick us. He's not trying to lie to us. He's not trying to give us false hopes. He's trying to tell us truth. He's trying to reveal himself to us. And it's real revelation. He really wants to tell us about himself. He's not lying to us. So then, we have this passage. But we have other passages. So that means when we find seeming inconsistencies, we should be able to find suitable answers to those problems. And this is because our God is not illogical or foolish. He loves us. And love doesn't lie. So let us turn to the passages of Scripture which seemingly contradict this passage. And the first one I want to bring you to is Matthew 8, verses 10 through 12. And you'll notice it comes very close on the heels of Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. It's the next chapter. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. He has a really short piece of information there about him healing a leper, an outcast in Israel. And then he has a short piece about him healing a, centuri a Gentile centurion's servant. Matthew 8, verses 10 through 12, we read this. This is after the centurion told Jesus, well, don't come to my house. You can do it from here. I understand authority. Jesus says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will sit in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's direct contradiction from 7, 13, and 14. Many will come into the kingdom of heaven from east and west. Next we have the parallel passage about the, 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 the narrow gate. Move to Luke, um, Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. Listen to the question that Jesus answers. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? That's the question Jesus has answered. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. 
For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That sounds like few, doesn't it? But that's not where Jesus stops. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drink in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. It doesn't sound good. Are, are few going to be saved? It sounds like it. Now listen to verse 29. They will come from east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first and there are first will be last. Notice the theme. Jesus is talking to first century Jews. These are his audience. When he sent out the twelve to go out and preach the gospel that he gave to them, he commanded them to only go to the cities that are in Israel, not to go to the Gentiles. When he spoke with a Gentile widow from Sidon, he said, I came to minister to the Jews, not to the, the Gentiles. And she says, oh, but even the little dogs eat from the scraps of the table. When Jesus was gracious and showed mercy to her and healed her daughter. But Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But the Jews en masse rejected him. They crucified him. They chose death. And few found the narrow gate. So that by AD 70, 40 years after Jesus was crucified, Israel was annihilated. The temple was not one stone was left on another. That's, Jesus prophesied that shortly before he was crucified. Not, and, and he says, this is how you'll, this generation will see. When he... Um, you found the narrow gate. But when Jesus elaborates the condemnation of the Jews, the fact that they are weeping and gnashing their teeth because they, they are not allowed into the kingdom, their condemnation is the banquet of the Gentiles. It's life for the Gentiles. The, the gospel is for the world. The, the covenant that God made with Abraham was for his seed, and his, seed, his family would bless all the nations of the world. God speaks of numbered as the sand of the shore and as the, the stars in the sky. Go count them. It's not few. So this passage is temporarily literal. It's temporarily literal. The answer to the question, Lord, are there few who are saved? Ultimately is verse 29. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. That's the answer. No, not few will be saved. So our text, taken in context, wraps up the introductory sermon on the mount of, of the sermon on the kingdom of heaven for the Jews. And Jesus was declaring to them the way of salvation. 
and commanding them to enter by the narrow gates. Don't put your faith in these hypocritical gods. Don't put your faith in your works. Put your faith in God, in Jesus. He was declaring to them the way of salvation. And it's glorious that Jesus does this. John 1, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But Jesus came, and he, he shined the light. Because even for the Jews, for whom this prophecy was literally few, Jesus still came to bring grace. He offered the truth. He offered eternal life. Now you may be saying to yourself, wait a second. Today in the world, only 31.5% of the global population is Christian. And that means that we are still the minority. Right? Yes. We are less than, than half. The people who claim to be Christian is less than half of the global, the global population. So that means that uh, we are the minority. But you can look at it another way, too. That Christianity at 31.5% is the largest religion globally, followed by Muslims at 23%. And then secular, unaffiliated people at 16%, and Hindus at 15%, and then it gets small, at 7% down. The largest religion by a good 10 percentage points, nine, nine and a half percentage points of the global population. And even if you disqualify the vast majority of Christians as weak or heterodox or heretical, at least in name, they submit to Jesus Christ. And moreover, Christianity, no matter which way you cut it, we have gloriously exploded from a minute segment of backwater Judaism that existed in the Roman world of the first century. When Jesus died, there is a small band of Christians. When Jesus went to heaven, the Christians met in Jerusalem. There were 120 of them in the room. And then the Holy Spirit came. And Peter preached his first gospel message. And 3,000 souls, or 5,000 souls, a lot of people were saved right away. And we see that kind of growth and spread of the gospel regularly through the book of Acts. So it's temporarily literal, but it's figuratively permanent. There is only one narrow gate, and the gate is very narrow. There's only one way, and there's only one truth, and there's only one life. And according to the Great Commission, we find at the end of the Gospel, all authority in heaven and earth are grasped in his hands. The path is difficult. We still suffer. We must constantly mortify our flesh. We must die to ourselves. We must pick up our crosses and follow Jesus Christ. Suffering is our lot. But grace is our end. Because this road 
leads to life. So choose it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. not a secret. God has freely given to us his word. He's not hidden his declaration of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Jesus plainly tells us what God wants from us. His light shines in the darkness so that we can plainly see that there are two paths, the way of life and the way of death. Life is hard. It is suffering. It is sacrificial. But it is also good, rewarding, and redemptive. God gives us this life freely by the power of His Spirit. He shows us how to live and demonstrates it for us. Jesus lived and died to show us what it means to be faithful in this life. But His life also comes with a promise. A promise of resurrection and eternal blessedness and reward. His light also declares a warning. The only other option is death and damnation. And while it may be easy for a time, it is folly and manifestly so. So choose life. Choose Jesus Christ. Believe his gospel. Jesus promised to be with us. He promises to comfort us by his spirit. And he gave us this meal as a testimony of his presence and our hope. This table is for all baptized Christians. Those who are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we profess and proclaim that we are sinners. And we have no hope except in the sovereign mercy of our God. And that we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.